Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Ask the Therapist. It's lovely to have you here. Today I'm interviewing Whitney. Whitney um, was introduced to me via Patricia Murphy, who was a guest on my show a couple of episodes ago. We are all friends on the wonderful world of Twitter, so come over and say hello. And Whitney's been such a fun guest. She's a psychological well-being practitioner in an IAP service. IAP stands for Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. And I'm sure many of you are thinking access is absolutely appalling, which it can be, but hopefully Whitney shed some light on why and, how, and what I really got a sense of is that people need to know the, the therapists behind these waiting lists, that they really do care, they're passionate about what they're doing and they are working so hard to get waiting lists down, but it's not it's not ideal, it's not great, so we need to be talking about it and getting the conversation out there. She shares a bit about her service and how to get access to um, an IAP service, um, which might be easier than what you realise. She's passionate about black people's mental health and gives me some really good advice to make sure that I'm improving um, the therapy that I offer um, black people and people of different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. Whitney talks about her own mental health as well and what she does every day to keep her mental health in top notch so she can work and be a sponge for other people's um, mental health and um, be the best therapist she can. It's a lovely interview, really enjoyed it. I know you're going to enjoy it too, so sit back, relax and grab a coffee. Hello Whitney and lovely to have you on Ask the Therapist. Thank you for agreeing to come on and do an episode. Um, could you just first introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey in mental health? Yeah, so um, obviously my name is Whitney Nyarambi and I was born in Zimbabwe, which is a country in the south of Africa, but I've lived in England for 15 years, um, so I'm, I think... I think of myself as very northern as well as African. Yeah, so in terms of my journey for mental health, I actually think my journey started as a service user. So when I was 18 years old, I was very, very unwell mentally. I I was studying my psychology degree and obviously I'd moved away from home. So I was in Birmingham and I ended up going through various mental health services. So I was actually under crisis team for a long time. I was under the community mental health team for a long time. Um, and then towards the end, as I was kind of getting better, I was there high up service. So from finishing my degree is when I started being on the other side in terms of working in mental health. So I started uh, working as a mental health support worker and I started in a learning disability service. And then I went to work for the NHS. So I started working on a forensic ward with people with psychosis and like various illnesses like that. And then I went to work in CAMS, so children and adolescent mental health. So I was working on an inpatient ward as well when I was doing that. And then I went and did my training as a psychological wellbeing practitioner. So that's what I'm currently doing at the moment. Wow, so you've had so many experiences from both sides. Was your yeah. experience of having mental health services positive? Um, I think it was positive and negative. Um, I think more of it was negative, but at the same time, I was so unwell that I didn't have much insight um, in terms of what was going on. And it was actually 
being on the other side, that made me think, oh, so that was crisis. So that was community mental health team. So that was this. But when it was happening, it was just various mental health professionals constantly coming to my house. Confusing. Yeah, just really confusing. And and all I remember was I just kept asking for CBT. It's <laughs> just really weird. Yeah. I did, yeah. I knew that it was about teaching you to be your own therapist, which was what I wanted. I didn't want to talk about everything. I wanted to be able to see how things are and know how I can make changes. So I kept requesting CBT and I never got it. Um, and I think it's because IAPT was probably just starting. So I actually didn't hear of it until when I started getting better. But I think if it was around that time, I really would have benefited from it. Uh, that's really unfortunate. So you're currently in an IAPT service, but many don't know anything about IAPT. Um, yeah. A little bit about what IAPT is and what does it stand for? In improving access to psychological therapies, isn't it? Yeah, so so IAPT has been around I think since between 2005 2009, they were kind of bringing it together. And the reason why they created IAPT was because they acknowledged that there was such a high population of people with depression and anxiety. And it was having a financial burden uh, on the country in, in the sense that uh, it was the, the depression and anxiety was impacting people so bad that they couldn't go to work and they needed to be on benefits and things like that. So they realised that actually, I think <clears throat> David Clark and other people realised that actually if we started helping people with their mental health, we would save money um, in, in England because more people would be in work and all of that. So... They created my role, which is psychological wellbeing practitioner, which is a really hard role to explain, but it's basically, um, you're almost like, I think people call it a physiotherapist for your mental health. So, yeah. so, that's, that's how I describe myself sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're using CBT therapy, but you're not a CBT therapist. Uh, and you're really guiding someone to um, make the changes that are going to make them feel better and understand the problem a little bit more. Uh, so, yeah, it's really, um, obviously it has its issues, but it's I'm quite passionate about it, being someone who didn't have access to, to therapies um, and now how it's so easy for anybody to access. I have to might take a long time, but you can access it. So I've worked for two services so far. Um, so if you want what they call step two, which is what I do, you probably would be seen, if it's one-to-one, -one, you'd be seen between four months to six months. Um, sometimes a lot quicker, but it really, really varies because sometimes the waiting lists are looking at the localities or where people are. So it's not like a whole service waiting list. And it also depends on the staff that we have at the time because IAPT is such a fast kind of changing um, field that people are constantly progressing, changing jobs, so staff retention. It's, it's really hardcore. I did it for quite a bit in the, a tough yeah. area of Manchester. And yeah. It changed my mental health a little. Yeah. Um, like you, I think our waiting times. So I don't know what they're like now, and I know they're changing all the time, and they're trying to work on getting the waiting list down. But it's about a year. What I yeah. used to find that lots of people, by the time they got the appointment, they didn't turn up. So the frustrating thing for me in an empty clinic. Yeah. Do you find that? 
Mm, and it's still the same, yeah. So by sometimes by the time people have therapy, they don't want it anymore. By the time they've reached that top, because they've kind of felt really let down um, by services, and it's really it's really sad sometimes. Because I hear people, you know, I'll call someone to say. Um, so, for example, if I'm waiting to have supervision and I haven't done it because you know we're behind on supervision, and I'll say we have to reschedule our appointment, and someone says to me. I feel like you're not making me a priority. I'm not a priority to you. And that's really hard sometimes because it's it's almost like you can't be the best therapist that you can be because you're also working with the challenges and the demands of, of the service. Everybody's doing the best that they can, but it's it's not the best that we want to be doing, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you're customer-facing, aren't you? You're the person who has to sit into the clients and stuff. So it's- it's really, really tough, and my experience is that everybody working in their services are working so hard and above and beyond. It's really, you know, really everybody's trying their best, and hopefully we'll we'll get there and kind of improving access because there's a lot more work to be done, isn't there? You're really passionate about Black people's mental health, aren't you? Can you tell me about that and and what's your passion? Yeah, so I was I was really intrigued on you when you wrote down that question, um, because there is there's also almost that thing of you know having an interest in BME mental health being a special interest. Um, like we have a lot of special interest groups in BABCP, DCP, everywhere, and and I really want us to move away from that to make it that it's. Um, that if the, that we don't even have to think about it in that in that way that we're just delivering kind of appropriate support for everybody so when i put um you know when i put on my twitter that i am passionate about black people's mental health it's because i'm trying to be intentional uh, in terms of why i really want to make the change so i'm absolutely passionate about everybody's mental health um you know f- forever but it's what tends to happen because we're so different as people in terms of our backgrounds that if you're not intentional in where you're trying to make the change then the change isn't going to occur um because there is this term of black and asian ethnic minority bme which is commonly used and what tends to happen is when services are saying we want to um you know, improve access for BME people, BME people, that really hot kind of topic, they tend to focus on certain uh, ethnicities or backgrounds, like, um, for example, Polish people or or people from, like, Bangladesh, which there is quite a huge population from that kind of background, and I understand that, but their needs are completely different um, to black people's needs, everybody's needs are completely different. So, so every time you focus on one, you're excluding somebody else. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's almost like if we put everybody into the same pot. So if we say BME, we're only going to focus on one or two. But if we say we're going to focus on black people, we're going to focus on Africans or Caribbeans or um, uh, Bangladeshi people, Polish people, I think the work is likely to be a lot more uh, of good quality. Um, It's going to be a lot more effective than if we just kind of group everybody in the same pot and deliver therapy in that way. Because the thing is, with black people they face so much more challenges in accessing therapy they are overrepresented in secondary care so 
um, things like you know mental health hospital inpatient wars there is a high significantly high population of more black people in in that field but in terms of primary care there's not enough of us actually accessing therapy um, and I think that's quite interesting there's not really much work that's probably been done to look at why that is but it's you know, there's so many barriers that are created by the NHS themselves for people like me to access therapy. But there's also barriers within our own communities that we're facing. So if you really want to increase access for black people, you really have to be intentional in, in, in really considering all these barriers that are there and what can be done in terms of improving that you know, to increase that access. What do you think, if there's some things that you see that need improving in the kind of service that you work in? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not specifically speaking about any, like my service or the one I was before, but from what I've seen so far, um, so in one service I had a, kind of a BME champion lead, so that's what tends to happen, which is basically someone who has a special interest in, in uh, kind of that field but that wasn't effective because you know you're, you don't tend to be supported and making that change it's almost like a tick box exercise that oh well we're doing this because we have that person doing all this work when actually it's such a huge amount of work it's such a huge project and the person who tends to have that role is usually someone like me who has uh, probably the least experience and least training than everybody else but I just happen to be black so that's going to mean that I'm now having to do all this work when it needs to be more of a service work it shouldn't be just one person's responsibility um, and especially when you know if that person's been given that role then they're now the expert so then they need to obviously go and do the research come back and say this is what we need to do but when you come back and say that it's just um, actually we can't do that because this 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 and that we've got this going on, we've got that going on. So you're just met with all these barriers where it ends up feeling like you're begging to do all this extra work, which by the way, you tend to do outside of your own work time anyways, because no one's going to allow you to have less clinical contact just because you want to do this spe special interest project. So I think, you know, if for me to even accept that role ever again, um, I, I need to see that people actually want that change and that it's not just a tick box exercise because you face so many yeah and you face so many microaggressions in that process and so many awkward conversations that um, it, it's kind of more of a loss for me to do it than, than for the service really in terms of doing things like that so I think that is a first step needs to be changed I also think that we need to think about how we prioritize black people in terms of accessing support because if we think about um, veterans they're usually priority because they you know they've experienced so much trauma and they they've not really had the access to support for their mental health and it's exactly the same for black people we've experienced so much trauma and we still are you know for different reasons but that's not being considered in terms of as being a priority for for our own mental health. So I think I could talk about this forever. <laughs> so there's a lot to say <laughs> um, in terms of that field. Is that why you set up the Twitter account? To... No, not at all. Um, 
So my Twitter account I actually made when I was 12 years old, which is <laughs> why it's got such a ridiculous name. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Oh, you might give it a plug now. Yeah. Yeah, I was 12. And then I just made it, you know, for whatever reason 12-year-olds make Twitter. But then as I got older, I wanted to connect with other psychologists and other therapists and learn from them and really see, you know, what their interests are and what I can know. I just, I love psychology. I just always want to know as much as possible. So I created it. But then by that time, I'd um, obviously developed this passion and really wanting to improve access for BME people. So I decided to use it to talk about that and engage with other people, which is really nice, actually, to have those conversations with different people. Because I always I feel like I always learn something from it because I'm not going out as an expert. I'm just saying this is what the problem is. What do you think? What should we do? And, And that's quite nice, I think really generating the conversation and getting because yeah, yeah. it makes because I've had a few conversations on Twitter where I've gone away at work and I've said actually I don't like how we do this because of that and then that's led you know people who are working to really think about things differently so I think Twitter is really powerful in terms of how we're all working together even though it's just a hobby um, outside of work yeah I think you're right there as well about kind of seeing service users there as well because I think their voice is very important um, in shaping how we think about things as well. Absolutely and as a white therapist can you give me some that and I'm in private practice as well I think my percentage of kind of black people on my caseload is really minimal it's like it's a couple of percent it's a lot yeah yeah so I think you know first of all it's always important to think about what you're already doing to improve access and that care for black people in terms of what you do and you know what you think you can do to try and because what we want is culturally kind of appropriate sensitive therapy the main thing is what I tend to hear in terms of therapy is if you're having a session with someone who's black or from another background different to yours and they mention something about racism or something about their culture um what tends to happen is from the white therapist's point of view they kind of feel awkward and they kind of scurry around that and move on to something else and when we do that it makes it really awkward for the other person so I think when if someone mentions something about race or culture it's really important to funnel and get more information on that and be really open to say oh you know you mentioned this tell me a bit more about that because it's not that you have to give advice but really exploring that's going to give you more information. Yeah I find cultural things so interesting when people come from a different country or you know, I'm absolutely fascinated and will kind of own up to kind of not knowing everything. But it's yeah. such, you know, like religious beliefs can be really used well in therapy, can't they? But, but I kind of suppose I depend on the client teaching me a little bit about their belief systems and their heritage. And yeah, and I think that that is that is good because essentially even if I'm working with someone from the same background as me I try not to assume that I know exactly what they're talking about because everybody has different experiences but if, if you kind of open up to it and let them talk about it not just 
because what tends to happen is if someone says yeah you know i experienced racism now i'm feeling you know panicky because she said this and that then they say you know what's that thought that's going through your mind that's making you have those panic attacks and you've completely ignored that part about the racism and if you if you allowed your patient to talk about that more it's going to create such a strong therapeutic bond because they would say actually i can tell them about this i can tell them about that and it's not gonna you know make things awkward and i think for black people that's so important especially for me because i have white friends and i'll speak to them just like i'll speak to anybody else because they have made me feel comfortable to be able to talk about myself in that way around them um, and also to know how those conversations make you feel for example so if someone describes a, a really horrible racist kind of experience know how that makes you feel because how that makes you feel is going to um influence how you respond in your therapeutic statements because what happens sometimes and this isn't just in therapy it's more probably with my own friends experiences they would say well i'm not like that it makes me really upset that you think that all white people are like that we're not like that and that really takes the focus away from the person and puts it back onto you which we obviously don't want to do so if you know that actually i find that difficult i think you're better able to manage your therapeutic statements that you your empathy statements sorry that you say back in that moment because what you could say back could also equally make that person never want to speak about it ever again yeah that's just so damaging isn't it i think yeah. sometimes i suppose where i struggle is where i have a bit of knowledge but i'm not quite sure and i'm worried about getting it wrong that would make me skirt around stuff so I have a, a real capacity and obviously I do what I do and I've fascinated people's minds, people's experiences and backgrounds absolutely fascinate me. And, and I think that just makes you a human being that, you know, you, you do have those worries um, and, you know, it's important to, to still kind of have that conversation and just say, you know, I think I might be wrong, but and just kind of get it out there it's better to do that than to avoid it because you're so worried that you're going to say something offensive if that makes sense whereas if you're more like oh i don't know but this is what i'm thinking um it's a lot better because i can imagine it's really anxiety provoking because i know it's that fear of being perceived as racist it's it's, it's really you know quite strong isn't it that's really useful advice though that's you know you sort of name it that's what we need to be doing for sure be human yeah definitely definitely we're not we're not perfect human beings we can only learn from our experiences can't we yeah and it sounds like you've had your mental health challenges in the past and then you've you know you have a career in mental health do you do anything to look after your mental health day to day? Do you have any practices or things? Oh yeah, I do. Like I've had to. <laughs> I've learned that very quickly that you have to. So I I get really restless when I'm at work. Like if because obviously the majority of the work I do is over the phone. So just imagine you've got like back to back appointments and you just sat down. So one of the things I do every day, probably five times a day, is I stand up during my appointments. It sounds really silly, but it you really helps. You to stand up if I was on the phone, yeah. Do you have a headset? Yeah, I do. And I stand up and I'm like walking, pacing a little bit. <laughs> I look really mad and everyone's like, but they're so used to it now. 
but it really helps me because when I started to get a restless I just wanted to end I can't do it I'm dreading it I start getting really anxious so if I stand up it just helps me focus you know walk slow and it just helps me stay present with that person so that's one of the things I do I also go for 15 minute walks every day when I'm at work um I also like I have a thing where unless it's to do with really severe risk as soon as my last appointment's finished I have to be out of the door I have to leave and just leave it there I can't because you know you know there's always something to do so it's really important to just leave yeah and I go to the gym as well which really helps with energy because you know we're like um a sponge <laughs> and we just kind of put ourselves into everybody's kind of emotional problems so you really soak it in so it's really important to try and look after yourself physically um obviously there's supervision as well I do mindfulness which is my favorite thing in the world it's just it's really important for me to yeah to I do meditate almost every day pretty much in a way that I don't even think it's time to meditate. I just do it because I'm so used to it now. How have you got that into your daily routine? Do you do it at the same time every day? So no. Yeah, no, I don't even do it in that way. I just do, I think it's the, what they call the informal practice, isn't it? Where you're like, you might be walking and then you decide to just mindfully walk or to kind of uh, mindfully focus on your breathing or mindfully eat something, or mindfully listen to a song. Um, I do, obviously, things like the body scan and three-minute breathing space, but that's more if I'm at home at night um, to kind of relax. But the main one is to just decide that, you know, I'm just going to focus on my breathing for one minute or focus on what I'm doing for one second. So that's that's how I, I get it in. So it's not really, you know, quite structured. I have to do it at 3 p.m. every day. I just know it's time to do it, and I just do it. It sounds very nurturing rather than pressured. I've got to do this because I think sometimes I see people and they are doing mindfulness for their self-care, but it's like become this pressured thing on their to-do list, which is the reverse thing in my yeah. world, isn't it? Yeah, it's meant really. to nourish, not to plead. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's probably how I started. <laughs> yes, now I've realised that it doesn't help that way. No, no, that's really good. And if somebody, somebody listening to you and about your um, work in an IAP service might want to access IAP, how do people access um, IAP services and psychological therapy? Yeah, so it's quite easy. So you could, um, you could go to your GP and your GP can refer you or they can give you details of your local IAP service. Um, or you can go into Google and just type in NHS psychological therapies and I think you have to enter your GP details so the surgery details in there and then it will bring up the one that's close to you because obviously it's all commissioned based on your GP um, and once you've got the details of it you all you have to do is either call or you can um, go on through the website and actually refer through the website or your GP could refer you if that's easy so it's really easy these days. So it's self-referral these days, which I, I know they were, when I was leaving, they were just starting to roll that out, and I don't think many people are aware of that. Yeah. I, I think that's fantastic, isn't it? And I think it's really positive. Sometimes I, I, cause I, sometimes I see people that are on the list that will 
so I just can't wait. So I'm going to come and see you for a few sessions. We'll have a few private sessions and I'll write up what we've done. And um, when the sessions in the NHS come about, they go over to the NHS because obviously private is you have to fund it yourself mm -hmm. often. Um, but I do recommend that if you think that the therapy might be something for you, you kind of get yourself on the list as quickly as possible. Yeah. Because, but also it sounds like it's still really important to, if you don't want to be on the list, get your name off the list, because that can yeah. those waiting lists down, and do cancel your appointments, don't just not turn up, because yeah. honestly I really think that could have a massive impact, and the waiting list and mental health services are struggling so much, and wanting to do so much with so little really, aren't they, but you know, yeah. what's nice is people can hear your passion about what you do, how tough your job is, and it gives people a sense that behind those waiting lists are people that really want to get to people, yeah. you know, really yeah. to practice. Yeah. yeah. And then going back now, this is this last question is it sometimes people <laughs> dread this question, but I always find it the most fascinating one. It's me being nosy. But if you could have a conversation with your 15 year old your old self what would you say to your younger self now what advice would you give her you know i thought about that question and it's still the same thing that keeps coming back don't revise go to bed <laughs> <laughs> when i was 15 i was obsessed with school academia yeah, yeah i to the point where it really did affect my mental health looking back i used to stay up all night revising go to school stay after school for a couple of hours i used to say i can't spend time with my friends because i'm wasting time i need to study i need to get good grades and if i could go back i would say don't revise go to bed <laughs> chill out it'll be all right and and also speak to your mum yeah, because I was at that age, I was at the stage where I knew everything and she knew nothing. So, <laughs> if I, I could. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good advice. Good advice. And if people wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best platform for people? To um, probably on, on Twitter. So, I think my name is Whitney. So, W H I T N E. XXI, so Whitnexy, and then it should come up as Whitney if we type it that way. Um, yeah, I'll so I feel Yeah. Yeah. But it was really nice speaking to you, Sarah. You're very lovely. <laughs> Yeah. and carry on the conversation on Twitter. So thank you so much.